0: Doctor's Lounge, Dr. Karuchek here, Mike Karuchek, your host this week. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, Every week... Between my co-host, uh, Dr. Hal Schertz, and myself, we bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. Uh, the Doctors' Lounge is sponsored by the Doctors for Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 organization. We believe in supporting free market solutions to the problems that challenge our healthcare system. And uh, these days, uh, with the unexpected change in the political climate, we are, as uh, Dr. Hal put it to me the other day, kind of like the dog that caught the car. Uh, And the question is, uh, what do you do now that you've got everything that you kind of wish for? We have a significant change of leadership in the White House and Republicans with uh, control of both houses of Congress. Uh, and, uh, and, and a whirlwind of activity since Donald Trump was inaugurated in, in low these couple of weeks. We've seen more things to talk about you know, almost than, than we can, uh, can we even handle, right? I mean what's what's on this list? Well, you know we have the, uh, we have the immigration ban, we have the wall with Mexico. Uh, we have a new Supreme Court nominee that I'm sure will cause a lot of stir. Um, we have an in- interesting uh, uh, executive order that says that for every regulation, and every new regulation that's passed you have to repeal two of them uh, we have the keystone pipeline approved we have lots of cabinet appointee uh, nominees uh, we have set a new record and how fast you can fire an attorney general uh, if that person gets out of line and last but not least the one that is relevant to the doctor's lounge the one that pertains to health care which would be the executive order regarding obamacare Passed, I think, if memory serves, during Donald Trump's first full day in office, so keeping a campaign promise – uh, that he had long since uh, made many a times on the campaign trail. So uh, as part of this flurry of activity, we have uh, our first topic uh, of the hour, which is to sort of dissect a little bit uh, exactly what goes into this uh, Obamacare executive order. And there's a very good summary of this that I'm going to base my discussion on here in the next few minutes. Uh, uh, an article from Forbes magazine written right after the order was issued uh, by one Carolyn McClanahan. I think it's pretty good review, so I'm going to base a little bit of a chat adding on this so apparently this executive order and I, and I know very little about how executive orders are supposed to be structured I don't think anybody knows that unless they've just researched it recently but there's there's five main sections to this executive order and we can go through them and talk about the implications of each and section one is just a very short uh, more of a, of a moral approach or a blueprint than anything else which just says to minimize the economic and regulatory burden. Okay, fine. Okay, I can take that. It's a wide open. I don't really know how you interpret that or what you do with it. Uh, section two is a little more specific. Uh, and I think it's actually really the, the working language of section one. So section two says we're going to help everyone who could be harmed by uh by uh obamacare anyone who could be harmed by obamacare and the department of uh health and human services um hhs can uh can grant exemptions to parts of the law or delays to parts of the law and they they give a laundry list of entities that could be uh that this could be applied to and i think they went out of their way to include basically everybody so listen to this list we have individuals families providers thank you very much not thrilled being called a provider but i'll take it if we're a part of this thing, insurers, patients, recipients of health care services, which I thought was patients, but okay, fine, um, purchasers of health insurance, device makers and pharmaceuticals. So I think their, their goal was to cover everyone. I can't think of any part of the health care system that's not covered by that laundry list. And so it looks like between sections one and two, sort of the overall approach here, uh, is, is that they're trying to basically unwind Obamacare in the same order, in reverse order, I'm sorry, reverse order than it was implemented, right? Think about what happened. Obamacare was passed way back in 2009 and this all moved, uh, you know, beyond that and Obamacare of course gave HHS a broad authority to sort of fill in the meat on the bones. I think that's sort of the metaphor I read where the, the Obamacare law was the bones and HHS put the meat on the bones. So how do you do that in reverse? Well, you act like a piranha and strip all the meat off the bones uh, before you go after the bones themselves. So uh, you know what uh, what HHS can give, HHS can take away, and I think that's how this is supposed to work. And maybe it suggests a very different strategy to dealing with Obamacare than um, we're all assuming has to happen. Right? We're all assuming that the legislation has to get passed first. And then de implementation or unwinding of Obamacare occurs according to the legislative blueprint. Well, maybe it doesn't have to work that way. Maybe the thing to do it and Dr. Hal already talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so uh you know, I don't want to repeat his thunder too much, but uh maybe what this executive order uh, stage, which didn't exist at the time of Hal Show, uh, sort of lays that out and says, look, we're going to um, unwind what we can without having to confront the legislative problem uh, and then maybe see what happens before you craft the legislation. Maybe we're thinking too far ahead by talking about the legislation. Or it also gives an alternative sort of plan B if there is legislative gridlock, or if the Republicans flinch, uh, when it comes to doing something bold enough that, that, uh, that makes a difference, uh, that maybe this is how we unwind things. So maybe we, um, don't necessarily, uh, you know, get rid of the mandate legislatively. We just reduce the fine or grant lots of delays or exemptions. Uh, and so a lot of these things, if you can take the teeth out of them, maybe we can functionally get rid of things without having to legislatively get rid of things, and maybe there's something going on there. So that's section one and section two of the Obamacare executive order. So there's three more sections, three, four, and five. Well, three is very brief language, I think, that just sort of talks about supporting the states, and I'm not smart enough to know where to take that. Section four emphasizes the free market. Which is fine as far as it goes. I wonder exactly what they mean by that, but it makes me wonder if this wouldn't be a section that one could cite to support the advancement of direct primary care regulations uh that would support direct primary care would allow medicare funds to be used to pay direct primary care premiums or 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 you know monthly fees or something like that and uh, and and maybe that would uh, be something that would be useful so when i saw the free market language of course i thought about direct primary care that we've talked about here uh, you know at length on multiple occasions over the uh two and a half years now that we've been on the air section 5 the final section is the only downer um, in this whole thing and really talks about um, that, that the rules still have to be followed and what rules are we talking about? Well, uh, there was an article in New York Times that sort of suggested what rules they are talking about, which despite the source sounds like it might actually be credible. But they talk about the fact that when HHS or CMS issues new regulations, they have to do it through a certain protocol that we saw when we talked about MACRA Last year, which is that you issue a proposed rule, there's a commentary period, and then there's a final rule. Now, in 2016, with MACRA, that took from April to November. So that was what the end of April to, well, to mid-October, I guess. So what is that about six months? Uh, and the question is, could you do it faster? Maybe a shorter commentary period? Because it's not going to be as sweeping as Macra was. I don't think any of these regulatory changes are going to be an 800-page behemoth. I think they're going to be shorter and cleaner and simpler than that. And so maybe that duty cycle could be moved up. Because we don't have a lot of time here. Uh, you know, we have midterms coming up in 2018. And if, if the administration and the Congress don't team up to produce tangible progress, and tangible results, uh, then we're going to be up against you know issues in 2018 in terms of uh, of hanging on to the means to change things. So you know that's fine as far as it goes, and of course we have to follow the rule of law as it exists. Uh, you know the question is, can we get through this notice and comment protocol um, and get things done uh, in time to uh, to show some progress for 2018? That would be the fundamental question, uh, and so uh, you know that that clearly this this executive order leaves um, HHS in full control of of what's going on at least in the short term, uh, absent any legislation to the contrary or to support that. Uh, and so we're, that brings us back to Tom Price and the last bit of news that we'll share, which has to do with the uh, Democrats successful delay at least for a little while of a vote on his confirmation and so they managed to by not showing up for a finance committee meeting uh, earlier this week they've delayed that vote so then the question is while we're waiting uh, you know what can what can happen uh, that's that's going to help us out here where is this going to go because the rest of it's all conjecture right and, and there's been huge amounts of effort and and uh and column inches and um you know ink devoted to trying to figure out what's gonna happen to Obamacare. Should you repeal it, should you repeal and replace, repeal and replace immediately, repeal and replace later. Uh and, and I found a very interesting article um that sort of lays all of this out. And and the reason I picked this article is almost more about the source. Um, than it is about the material, uh, and this is in a, in a in a little newspaper that that if you're an ear, nose, and throat doctor you get called ENT today. Uh, it's actually. Not a newspaper with the, uh, with the dull paper, but you can hear me rattling around this thing. You know, you don't hear the rattling of a newspaper very much anymore, but that's what I'm doing. Um, and this is an article written by one Gerard Gianoli, who is an uh, associate professor uh, in the Department of Otolaryngology, my specialty. Uh, otolaryngology head and neck surgery and pediatrics at Tulane University School of Medicine uh, and is also in private practice in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So he writes this very interesting article, and the thing that's, that is relevant about this is the source because typically academic medicine publications like the one i'm holding in my hand are very very reluctant to cross swords with the government and that's for a lot of reasons they're dependent on nih grants for research they tend to be very much cheerleaders for you know whatever's going on in government and so uh, it's very surprising to see this article because this article is very uh, damning of Obamacare and actually comes up with some very interesting arguments. So uh, it's very interesting to see this article sort of come out swinging. And say Obamacare has failed in bold print right after the introduction, uh, and recites arguments that we are familiar with uh, as uh, listeners and creators of this program. Um, but says, you know, the ACA, Obamacare has failed on almost every promise. Average insurance premiums of twenty four percent are set for two thousand seventeen, with four states seeing average premium increases of more than fifty percent. Uh, the ACA has reduced the medical options again. I'm reading straight from the article here. The ACA has reduced the medical options of virtually all Americans through progressively narrower insurance panels, um, you know, higher deductibles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, we are coming up uh, close to the end of the segment here. So I am going to stop myself uh, mid sentence, and uh, we will pick it up after the break. Um, you are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us.
3: Thank you.
2: You're listening to America's Web Radio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host for this week, Dr. Mike Karuchak, on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we are delighted to have you with us. We are delighted for your support of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. I am pleased. I am grateful. Uh, to report that for the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, our end-of-year donations were spectacular. Uh, we were very pleased to see the amount that came in. Uh, we thank you, the listeners and other supporters of the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, for your financial support. Uh, if you haven't given yet, I urge you, I beg you, I implore you to consider doing that. Go to wwwd 4 pc foundation.org, that's D the numeral four, letter P, letter C, word foundation.org. Uh, the uh, landing page there uh, shows you how to give and uh we need every penny that you can spare. The what we do here, the, the the board of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, including Dr. Hal and myself and Dr. Gross and others, uh donate their time. We don't get a penny of compensation for creating the show or doing any of the uh the other things that we do uh and we need your financial support to keep this going because there are significant expenses associated not only with the production of this show, but all the other things that the Foundation does. So if you like what you hear uh, and you enjoy uh, downloading the podcast every week or listening every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. on America's Web Radio, please uh, give us uh, support that you can spare. It will keep us going um, and uh, and allow us to continue uh, delivering the message and spreading the news. Um, and now we're in an era where uh you know these seeds are going to find fertile ground uh you know we have been for the past several years of course um sort of uh you know wandering in the wilderness until things changed for the better uh recently and uh and now we really have a chance to make this work so please help us um and uh, thanks in advance for your financial support we were talking at the end of the last segment about Donald Trump's executive order affecting Obamacare, um, what it says, what it doesn't say, how much ambiguity it leaves, uh, how it may be laying the blueprint to unwind Obamacare, dismantle Obamacare in small incremental steps, um, as Dr. Howe said a few weeks ago, by using not only the language of Obamacare to, you know, against it, you know, the Obamacare language says that the Secretary of HHS shall – the secretary shall establish regulations. The secretary shall make rules. Um, and in those – in that kind of paradigm and that kind of legal structure, what the secretary creates, another secretary can unwind or dismantle. Uh, and I think that's what this uh, uh, Trump executive order was aimed at doing. And then we said, look, well, beyond that, everything else is conjecture. Everything else is a guess, but I think there is a sea change. I think there has been a bit of movement of the earth under America's feet uh, in terms of the attitude of many folks, uh, including perhaps organized medicine, maybe. Maybe I'm hoping too much. Maybe I'm reading too much. But we're reviewing this article written by one Dr. Gerard uh uh, who is at Tulane and uh, private practice in Baton Rouge. Uh, Not only did he write the article, but uh, a, a publication that is common in my specialty called ENT Today actually published it. Uh, which means that not only are there authors willing to write this stuff in organized medicine and academic medicine, but there are editorial boards willing to publish it. So we're just going through this article and sort of going through some of the details to marvel you know, not only at the facts but who is actually telling them. So – uh, this article comes out swinging. It says Obamacare's has failed uh, and, and uh, talks about uh, the fact that, yes, there's 20 million new Americans on insurance, but um, those 20 million Americans are faced with a deductible of at least $6,000, which is the bronze-level deductible, um, and while they can claim to have insurance because they have a card – uh, you know, how much true access to care do you have if your deductible's that high? And we've talked about that before. You know, it's easy to put a card in somebody's hand and then a politician can get behind a podium or in front of a TV camera and claim this success because 20 million people have cards. But the question is, how many of those can afford their deductible? And then on top of that, if they can afford their deductible, how many doctors actually take Obamacare exchange plans, because I can tell you that in our practice that has been an issue. We do take them. Um, the major academic institution in our town does not take uh, Obamacare exchange plans. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of uh, you know problems going on with that. And, and, and certainly there are major obstructions to care, even if you're holding an Obamacare exchange card. And so the article goes on and talks about the Obamacare death spiral, adverse selection, things that you have heard Dr. Hal and I and guests talk about before, that the, the harder it gets to get insurance, the more healthy people opt out in spite of the penalty that leaves only the sicker patients and fewer healthy patients to carry those folks with their premiums. Uh, and so it gets even more expensive and even more people drop out, and that's how the death spiral works. Then the article quotes, um, of all people, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who said in a recent article – and I quote – I'm quoting Elizabeth Warren's quote from the article, so it's kind of a two levels of separation thing. But here's the quotation. America's want reform to Obamacare, Democrats, Democrats included. Um, Democrats must bring down the cost of health care uh, – health insurance and the cost of care. So – um, I don't know if that's out of context or not. That's an interesting thing for Elizabeth Warren to say, but so be it. Uh, th- so then the article goes into the case for uh, repealing Obamacare and the case for – I'm sorry, the case against repealing Obamacare and the case for repealing Obamacare. You know, The case against Obamacare measures things we already know. First and foremost, 20 million newly insured Americans, the guarantee provision that says you can't be turned down for a preexisting condition, and maintaining your kids on your own plan until they are 26 years old, all stuff that's popular. Uh, then the, the, the case um, for repealing Obamacare kind of debunks all of that stuff, and there's a great, a great quote here from the article that I'm leading up to, but uh, interesting facts here, or at least I don't know if they're facts but some statistics, and I'm not sure I believe them or not, or I can at least say that they're refuted, uh, one of which is uh, that this article says, of the 20 million Americans – that have insurance through Obamacare. This article says that 16 million of them receive Medicaid, and even if Obamacare was repealed, the folks on Medicaid would stay on Medicaid. I don't know if that's true or not, and there is a publication from the, um, the Congressional uh, Budget o- or Business Office, let me make sure I get this right, yeah, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, uh, and their numbers say that if Obamacare were re- repealed, That 18 million Americans would go uninsured, and that doesn't square with the math. If you've got 16 million on Medicaid of 20 million total insured, that only leaves 4 to 5 million, according to this article, that would lose insurance, and yet the Congressional Budget Office is saying 18 million. I I don't know how to reconcile those two mutually exclusive figures. Uh, And, you know, this gets down to what really becomes a problem when you're debating this stuff, is whose facts do you believe? And you know, once something gets quoted enough, whether you're reading the big government literature or the you know small government literature, both sides of the political aisle, you know they all sort of pull their gospel together and make strong arguments for their positions. But the question is, you know, the facts that one quotes and the facts that the other side quote are are are, you know mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. And this is a big deal. I mean, this is one of the things that is, you know, causing the Republicans to get cold feet in terms of coming up with a repeal bill or a replacement bill or a deal with it somehow bill is, you know, what are your facts? I mean, if if 16 million people are safely on Medicaid, no big deal. Uh, You know, but if 18 million people are going to lose insurance if you repeal without replacing or dealing with that question somehow, obviously it's different. So, so here come, but here comes the great quote, right? And this has to do with this whole idea that we should keep Obamacare because we like the idea of 26 year olds being on their parents' insurance and we like the idea of protecting people with pre-existing conditions, all of which are worthy in their own right. But, um, you know, you don't, here's the quote, you don't pour money into propping up a condemned collapsing house just because you like the large flat screen TV. Similarly, you don't keep thousands of pages of Affordable Care Act rules and regulations and all of the terrible things they spawn only be, just because you like the ability to keep your kids on your health insurance plan till the 26 and like the idea of keeping people with pre-existing conditions. And I think that's probably the central thought of the article is that, you know, we we like a few things there might there should be a way to save those, but you know, the idea that there's a couple of features of Obamacare that we like and the issue of how to take care of 20 million Americans first you've got to figure out what's going to happen to them with just a repeal is that that's not a reason to blackmail everybody else into keeping Obamacare essentially intact or for the Republicans to get cold feet about, uh, you know, what to do about it. But I think there's even more good news out there. I think that that we're starting to see, and I'm going to pivot a little bit here and talk about health information technology uh, and talk about, uh, reference a little bit of what we talked about two weeks ago when I had uh, a really smart guy as my guest on the show, one Dr. Chuck Webster, um, who is an MD but uh, decided after training to devote himself to health information technology and something called Workflow that we talked about extensively last time. And We talked about the fact that, you know, the, the HIT, Health Information Technology Community has been obsessed with data, uh, and that's fine as far as it goes, but that really what you gotta talk about is workflow, and use that concept, you can solve far more problems if you work on workflow than you do on data. And I found an article, and i got to flip to it here on my screen and hope I do it without screwing up. Okay, here we go. Um, so this was an article that was in uh, Health Data Management and published uh, on January 24th, so a little over a week ago. Um, and it talks about something that Johns Hopkins Hospital pioneered uh, that is being duplicated in other large academic medical centers, and it's something called a command center. And when I first looked at the title, I'm like, okay, this is going to be more BS. You know, I said, okay, fine. I'll read the article. It looks barely interesting enough, uh, for me to actually read. And I'm really glad I did because here's what they're talking about. Um, they are talking about what Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore has done, which is to create a 2,500 square foot command center. Um, and, but it's, it, it's not using big data to, cure cancer or manage diabetes or congestive heart failure or reduce their 30-day readmission rate or any of these, you know, straw men that big data likes to point itself at and the health IT community likes to point itself at, it's actually solving a far more practical problem um, that is that, that you get far more return on your information technology investment. And, and what they really talk about in here is bed control. Of all things. And, you know, for those of you who are, you know, 45 years of age or older, remember if you're a physician uh, from your medical training that when you were waiting for admissions to come in the hospital and get worked up, it might be hours. And I'm talking six, eight, 10 hours between the time that patient walks in the front door and they actually get to their hospital bed which in the uh, in the paper chart days was huge because you couldn 't get to them to do all of your admission paperwork, the admission history and physical, and all that stuff until they got to the bed, but they're actually using um, uh, you know, this high-tech uh, command center to to really do bed management. Uh, and they can forecast two or three days into the future what the occupancy of every hospital floor is going to be. Um, they're able to know immediately when a room's been turned over and it's ready for another admission. Um, and uh, they're also able to dispatch critical care teams sooner. That's a different problem now. But the point is they're looking at stuff that's not in the You know, cure cancer, cure heart failure, or diabetes thing. They're looking at something much more down to earth, and something that information technology is far more applicable to, which is. To get patients to their beds faster uh, and they're actually saving a huge amount of time in getting patients to their bed they're also saving a huge amount of time in in operating room turnover right and you know we, we can all tell you the surgeons can tell you in big hospitals that the amount of time between surgical cases is a huge waste it can be 45 minutes or an hour these folks cut transfer delays and bed turnovers by 70 percent. that's huge you know that you know you want to talk about customer service, patient engagement, the patient experience. Here's a huge improvement uh, so that folks don't have to sit around waiting for hours and hours to get from one place to another in the hospital. Anyhow, we're, I'm way over time. We are uh, at the end of the second segment. Uh, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for spending time with us this Thursday morning on the Doctor's Lounge broadcast by America's Web Radio. We are available both every Thursday morning uh, as a live broadcast on America's Web Radio. We are also available by podcast from the iTunes store. Um, Today we have a very special guest, and this is somebody that I have been meaning to have on the show for a long time. And before we even go on the air here, he has already elevated the experience dr chuck webster uh, because we are not only broadcasting on america's web radio by uh, traditional internet radio but we are on a new technology called fire talk so as we do this we're not only on audio but we're on audio video as well so chuck i'm just gonna let you do your own uh, introduction because you've got so much neat stuff going on if i try i'm gonna miss it so tell everybody who you are and we'll go from there
4: Wow. Okay, Mike, Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed uh, interacting with you over the uh, several years on Twitter, how we met. Feeling um, mutual. I guess I could sort of start with uh, I've got like five degrees. Uh, my mother says I'm killing myself by degree, and they include uh, accountancy, industrial engineering, artificial intelligence, medicine, and computational linguistics. So, yes. Oh, so that's God all. Was going <laughs> to pay me to go to school for a long time, uh,
0: Lord. So, yeah, well, uh, it, it, that multidisciplinary stuff is kind of what we need to move this along. Yeah. So. Well,
4: now, now the the funny thing is, is if you actually look at the intersection, uh, and one of my, you know, when you give a presentation, you show sometimes a slide about yourself at the very beginning. Uh, I show a Venn diagram, okay, and I I show my degrees, and you know, with like three or four bullet points in each one, and then I show the intersection, and the intersection is. Uh, healthcare workflow technology that is if you look at uh cost engineering which is about workflow and usability uh and medicine of course uh and artificial intelligence which is about knowledge representation so representing workflows and having engines work on them um that's uh kind of led me to what i do and i'm you know i i I play almost I play a character. Actually, there is a cartoon out there of me. Uh one of the vendors made a, <laughs> I, 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 they, they they did a they did a 15 minute cartoon with Chuck Webster as a character a character uh and um it's pretty funny. Uh, but, uh it kind of uh, and but um so, you know, Dr. Workflow, the king of all workflow in healthcare, the Workflow Bear. And that comes from this idea that if you, you know, if you're in the wintertime and there's a little cave and there's a bear and they're hibernating and you go and you poke them with a stick, they'll come out and they'll roar at you. So on Twitter, if people mention workflow, like they're at a conference and the speaker mentions workflow, they, they will tweet about it and they'll mention me. And I'll immediately, you know, start pontificating and agreeing or disagreeing. And that's called poking the workflow bear. Gotcha. Uh, currently, currently. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll cut it. Uh, the, the two two more things. Um, <clears throat> I'm a Health Information Management System Society social media ambassador. HIMSS is the 45,000 attendee conference that's happening in late February. Uh, and um, so, sort of kind of, it's basically a license to tweet, uh, to blog and video. So you walk up to a vendor booth, for ex- example. And they, and they say, well, why are you taking pictures? Or, you know, you want to be CEO. And then you say, oh, I'm a, I'm a social media ambassador. They say, oh, oh okay, okay, okay. And then they yeah. roll the red <laughs> carpet out. Sure. Uh, and then the other thing is, is this this year, for the first time ever, I'm also into 3D printing and uh, 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 my, Arduino and Raspberry Pi and so forth. Uh, one of the booths, HIMSS is actually donating a booth to become the first ever makerspace. Uh, this makerspace is in the innovation zone. It has three, two 3d printers, it has a couple of CNC tools, such as laser cutter engraver, uh, a probably 30 or 40 different, uh, boards, micro, you know, that you can build inputs and outputs and, you know, stuff. And it's really kind of an intended to be a place where if you have an idea, you could show up Monday morning and three and a half days later, you might have actually have a working prototype. Uh, so this um, is uh, this is the glorified so the education was the, was the beginning and that and then the the social media ambassador in the makerspace is kind of like now.
0: So this is like the uh, the steroid induced version of those sixty four and one electronics kits that you and I grew up on. Uh, you know, where you assemble components together, bending the springs yep. and putting the wires yep. on and uh, building your yep. your burglar yep. alarm. Uh, but now this is. is in the space you know where everything now becomes modular. And, and, and this is, you know, a huge part of, of where things are going, you know, not only from a treatment standpoint, but from an information management standpoint. True?
4: Yeah. Yeah. There, the, the modularity uh, inf, uh, is um, – so there is a connection between the makerspace and workflow, and that is I'd like to see physicians and patients uh, build their own systems and, 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 and tune and craft and systematically improve and share their own workflows – uh, and uh, uh, in the makerspace world, where you're where you're typically interacting with physical artifacts, um, the the idea of modularity is actually uh, considerably further along in the hardware world than it is in the um, in the software world. Because you think about you know patching together uh, you know hi-fi uh, setups, and, uh, and, and 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 you know and and, and there are, I'm, I'm holding a board right here uh, has. That can yeah. be plugged into other things. Right. And, he's, he's
0: holding up for um, the viewers on my end that don't have the video. He's holding up, you know, small computer chip modules, each of which do a focused task. And if you plug exactly. these things all together like jigsaw pieces, you can assemble complex devices. And, and the, the big deal here is that these things all work together and all you have to do is plug them in. And if you think about it, that's the thing that's missing – right now from you know what's getting used in the trenches of healthcare and healthcare information technology is that you know what what do we struggle with now, Chuck? Well be our EMR doesn't communicate with our portal. Yep. And our portal doesn't yep. communicate with our patients. And yep. the whole thing is complicated yep. by all the reporting we have to do, which takes up so much of our time that we got no time to work on some of this other stuff. So let me put this all in perspective for the for the viewers on my end with, with audio only. The the optimism that surrounds rounds 2017 and the expected the hoped and prayed for reduction in regulatory burden is going to free up a little bit of space it's going to put a little bit of oxygen back into the room so that we have the opportunity to look forward and start with a clean sheet of paper And say to ourselves what we should have been able to say in 2008, but we're unable to. But now eight or nine years later, you know, we have another window of opportunity opening, which says, look, what can health IT do for patients? and the docs that are taking care of them and start with that blank sheet of paper. And what Dr. Webster here has that I have watched him present over at least three, four years now is is material that needs to be included in the backbone of whatever we create to replace the regulation-driven, government-driven stuff that has made things worse instead of better. So Chuck's on the show today – to help explain to us his vision of what health IT should look like, and he's got a fantastic blog. Um, Chuck, why don't you give us the the uh, the address of your blog so my viewers care, my listeners can find it.
4: Sure. Uh, well, it's WearFlow. That's seven letters, not not eight. Whereflow. W A R E F L O. Flow like you know the gal on the uh, yeah insurance commercial. like
0: where like software. That's and, then yeah. and that's kind of like
4: software workflow. It's a portmanteau. It's a combination right. of two things, software workflow. But, you know, I'm also into kind of wearable, so you can think of There's a pun there. Um, and uh, and that's the same as on Twitter, wear flow, W-A-R-E-F-L-O on Twitter. And um, I'm interested. Oh, flow also, is, there's a psychological sense of uh, optimal flow uh, is, is an idea from psychology. So I'm interested in psychology and tool use and uh, IT and workflow. And um, and I agree. I, I, I want to mention your earlier sentiments. Uh, I do hope that we're in a situation where, um, you know, and you used a phrase I have frequently used. In fact, it was used to me by multiple people on separate occasions, and that's this idea of oxygen in the room um you know i i did a a focus group with 40 of the top cios uh two years ago three years ago uh in in scottsdale and uh, and it was all about workflow and innovation and, and and they said you know this is all great stuff but there's no but it's I mean, it, it, certain government programs have sort of sucked all the oxygen out of the room we we <clears throat> you know our our ceos are pressuring us to to deliver systems that will you know get the subsidies and that and that and so we can't do the good stuff right uh, and uh, and so i'm i am i hope i hope that there is a, a bit more oxygen than the
0: No, no question about it. And that's, you know, and I and I, you know, those of us who spend a lot of time in DC and I think you used to, you know, we're we're you know, we've got our sights on Macra uh in an attempt to, you know, to to lighten the regulatory burden and and allow folks like you and I and and IT vendors to work together to sort of make these dreams happen. So um we've got about what, two and a half minutes left in this thirteen minute segment, and I wanna save your latest Blog post that talks about the layers. It, it, you've got a, a great picture of a layer of pancakes or a stack of pancakes that starts with the patient experience and then outlines things to support it. So what I'd like to do is sort of stretch this segment a little bit and let you talk about that next time. But what, uh, Chuck is your sentiment and you mentioned it briefly. So I just want you to expand on it a little bit if you can, which is what is the sentiment of the folks in Health IT are are they as tired of the regulations as doctors are? Does everybody feel like you and I do? Um, it sounds like when you met with these inf- chief information officers, that's the case. But as a as a social media ambassador for Hims, uh, what are, what are you picking up?
4: Uh, well, let me say first that this uh, that uh, I'm not uh, even though. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of him as a social media ambassador. Um, and <clears throat> so, this is my personal opinion. Um, but I think, uh, although, but I think the 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 uh, agenda of, of the SMA is is to be, uh, you know, somewhat opinion in opinionated in a constructive way. Um, well, I can remember uh, <clears throat> this would have been gosh, four, a few years ago. Uh, it was hard to find a single person who was critical of meaningful use. Uh, and now, you know, we may be getting to an actual, you know, majority of folks who think that maybe it was a mistake. And there's even, you even get people who actually were quite instrumental in um, in making it happen who sort of say, who, me? <laughs> I, would, yeah. I, I was, you know.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, you know, so there's a lot of finger pointing going on now. And in fact, even recently, uh, as high up as Biden and Obama uh, basically said it was a failure uh, last week uh, and read the, the transcript. Um, so, you know, we've spent billions and billions of dollars and, and it did not achieve uh, the aims of, you know, uh, making the bowl and making healthcare better while, you know, controlling costs. Um, so, um, I Think we we need to try a different approach.
0: Good deal. Uh, Chuck, we're I at the end, I'm gonna cut you off. We're at the ed, we're at think, the end I of think the think segment. So we'll we'll get uh, we're going to pick this up right where we left off. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
3: Thank you.
2: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to the Doctors' Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek, with a very special guest, Dr. Chuck Webster, who is uh, a physician. He's so many things, I almost can't name them all off by memory, but a physician, a workflow guru, a linguistics expert. What am I leaving out, Chuck?
4: Uh, Well, I'm a dilettante, jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. I hear you. Um, So I could, like, mention things that don't have anything to do uh, (laughs) with uh, the subject at hand, like archaeologist. Okay. Uh, All right. uh,
0: So a lot
4: of different things. There's actually a mound... Go ahead. So, I
0: mean, Chuck is exactly the sort of, uh, you know, renaissance man, multidisciplinary, you know, understands a great deal of divergent fields very well. And, and this is the kind of mind that we're going to need if we're going to transform healthcare into something that is from something that is hampered by information technology to something that is enhanced by information technology. So we left off in the last segment, Chuck. We were talking about sort of the, the general uh, feel of, of what you're getting, of, of where you think health IT feels with respect to regulations. And then I think we're going to go on and talk about your latest uh, blog post, which outlines beautifully, I think, what docs and patients, for that matter, need to understand about how health IT can actually help us get the job done. Mm-hmm.
4: Okay. Uh, so you'd like me to continue to talk about
0: I'd like to, t- I'd like you to talk about, um, let's just go right into your blog post article. You, you had a blog okay. post and I, I couldn't find the date on it. It sounds like it's very recent, but, uh, you've got an excellent diagram in there that's a stack of pancakes, mm-hmm. basically, that says and the yep. top pancake is what the patient experiences. The stacks below are all the levels of, uh, of the components of a, of a well constructed medical practice that make that patient experience good not only in terms of outcome but the experience itself so why don't you talk about that
4: well sure um let's see uh i i write a lot of blog posts um partly uh, i participate in tweet chats and the, and the tweet chats will have a topic and this topic was patient experience and the company that was holding the tweet chat was was um Uh, it's kind of famous for its APIs, Application Programming Interfaces. Uh, And so I thought about, well, what is the connection between an API and uh, patient experience? Because we're certainly seeing headlines. The government is, uh, you know, uh, trying to get, like, for example, to open up their systems so that that data can be, you know, flow uh, into and out of mobile apps and uh, wearables and so forth. Um, And so... um, the um, uh, that blog post was my attempt to connect patient experience to these uh, under the hood technological artifacts called APIs.
0: So wait, let's talk um, about APIs. Define those for everybody because that's uh, my sure. listeners aren't okay. going to know that, but they need to.
4: Yeah, uh, well, application programming interface. So application that's perhaps the electronic health record. Uh, Programming uh, an API is usually something that a programmer uses, so that's why uh, users who aren't programmers might not be familiar with APIs. However, the the tools and the ease with which a programmer can proceed and build something has important downstream influence on user experience. Because uh, if uh, the, the users don't like their system and they want to change the system, if the system's hard to change. Then, uh, because the, because the programmers can't get at the data, uh, then that slows down, uh, systematically improving user experience and ultimately patients', uh, experience. If you think of them as both users of, you know, more and more sort of consumer or patient, uh, facing information technology, but also just, uh, you know, when they interact with the health system, they're interacting with people who may have a smile on their face but then when they turn around to interact with the back end systems if those workflows don't flow then you end up with a you know kind of a crappy customer user. well i experience.
0: think that was the sentence uh, customer, uh, that really resonated with me the most because that's what we struggle with i mean you know we have a culture in the office that says yes you know patients come first you you know and we we do our best to take care of them and uh, but the the problem is just what you're saying which is that if it's if we don't have You know, an interface, classic example, right? We order a chest x-ray, let's say. I mean, we don't order a lot of those in ENT, but let's just use an easy example is, you know, the staff member can smile and be happy to order the chest x-ray, but if they have to click a button on their EMR and then turn around and fill out the same paper form that they've been filling out for the past 20 years, then one, the IT isn't helping. And number two, the later in the day it gets, the harder it is to keep a smile on your face because you know the more busy work yep. you're creating and the more inefficiencies you've got to plow through. Yep. Uh, so that just – that really spoke to me, Chuck. Uh,
4: well, then do you, do you remember the phrase, the system uh, behind the smiles? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's in the your smile post. Behind, yeah, this, okay. Uh, so um, – Uh, so, and that comes from the hospitality industry. And if you think about experience, customer experience, checking, you know, going, checking into a Ritz-Carlton or a Four Seasons and how, you know, everything just seems to work and everybody's greeting you and they're very happy and then somehow you can just walk to your room. And, you know, because through all kinds of, uh, you know, Internet of Things magic, uh, it just knows that to allow you to enter your room. Um, and your and all your suitca- your suitcases all magically have just appeared there. Uh, well, <clears throat> you, you you know uh, you can. Uh, uh, there have been lots of studies that show that forty to sixty percent of customer experience is not about staff, their training, their attitude. It's about those back end workflows. Do they do do the workflows that the staff uh, rely on to do their job? Do they actually do what needs to be done? Um, and so, you know, you see a lot of customer um, service, ex- customer experience uh, uh, initiatives kind of focus on the smile. You know, getting you know, get gung ho staff and so forth. Uh, but you know, that creaky back end, badly designed for whatever reason, I, in, in, uh, enterprise software. And even though you know, you may be talking about medical practices here, that's you know, that's that's still the enterprise. The enterprise uh, is, is the medical practice. So yes, so that back end software that the user or the patient does not directly interact with has a a, a, at least a forty to sixty percent influence on that patient's uh, experience.
0: Absolutely, and and that's you know whenever and this is I'm going to speak to the docs in the audience for a second, but patients, you listen to this too because it obviously affects your experience. Typically, what physicians do, and this is something that has to change. Is when there is a workflow failure, patient calls because they didn't get their lab result when they thought they should, et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, there's a near miss in terms of something bad almost happening. What does the doctor typically do? Well, you go to your administrator and you say, here's something bad that's happened. You need to fix it. And then the doc just walks away. And expects it to get fixed, and we expect our administrators to pull off miracles. Well, what's happening under the hood of our miracle worker administrators is they're the ones that – they may not call it workflow, but they understand what it is, Mm -hmm. at least at an elementary level. And part of what I have tried to preach over these years is that docs need to take it one step further and and be willing to pop open the hood themselves side by side with their administrators Mm -hmm. and really understand – What's going on behind the scenes? Because if you don't, you can't affect it. And if you can't affect it, then you can't change it or improvement. And you end up in this vicious cycle of every few months, maybe something happens or something almost happens. And you go get mad and go to your administrator and they fix it for a while. And then with staff turnover and, you know, entropy and, you know, things tend to fall apart, you know, and, and I've always advocated the part of what EMRs do is sort of preserve those workflows. Cause if you can, number one, create the workflow, And number two, codify it with workflow management, right, business process software, the stuff that you talk about, and put it into your EMR. Then all of a sudden, if staff turns over or something, you've got some sort of way to preserve the knowledge, and you have something that's well-designed and something that stays. And I think that's got to be part of the the big sheet of paper too, but um, your thoughts? No, what you just
4: described uh, is incredibly. An incred- I'm going to make not an analogy, but I'm reminded of, okay? Um, and this is completely agreeing with everything you, thing you said. And I'm reminded of, uh, I, about a month ago, I went to a uh, business process management modeling workshop for one day, uh, 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 and it, where they brought this, and. Uh, uh, not just health IT people, but people who actually specialize in modeling uh, workflows using special notations and symbols. Uh, and um, and some sometimes those 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 representations of workflow can actually be stuck in a business process management system, and and, and they will execute. So so it's just it's a different way of programming. Uh, and it takes a lot less work to learn how to uh, draw pictures of workflow than it does to, like, learn to program. Um, sure. And here's the, here's the thing, and here's, and here's the reason I brought it up. It was kicked off by um, a physician in Cleveland uh, who gave a picture of exactly what you just described, which is, you know, the the, the doctor and the staff around them and the need to manage those workflows – uh, and how you can get burnt out, uh, but uh, and and how the, the physician has to trust that those workflows will happen, but so many times the workflows don't run successfully to execution. And is there a way of using uh, workflow ideas and documentation and technology and better manage healthcare workflows? But he was a physician, not a, not an engineer, not a workflow specialist, not not a uh, not not a, uh, not a health IT person. And he spoke eloquently, and he de- but he described these workflow problems in such a way that the people who aren't healthcare people, the BPM people in the audience, the people who are familiar with the business process management part, could understand. Okay, so there you kind of have you know these two groups that have to get together: the people who are the clinical people who understand the workflows, and the uh, workflow people. Who understand a lot about workflow and workflow technology, but don't understand the clinical domain. Absolutely. Uh, and what you what you described, now what he described was in, was having to do with uh, the VA and dealing with, um, Uh, veterans returning from you know iraq and afghanistan and dealing with their problems so you're talking about multi-system kinds of you know when you that enterprise is a is a ginormous enterprise that's you just basically did the same thing for medical for medical practice
0: right and that's and that's where you know those folks never cross paths I mean, hopefully that's what folks like you and I can do with a little it, regulatory. It, yeah, it is
4: happening. It, it, it's great. It's. I mean, I've been uh, I've been an advocate for workflow technology. I mean, I've and I've been diagramming workflow. I mean, I diagram workflows for a living. Practically, you know, three years ago, uh, for for decades, and and it is happening. It's it's not happening fast enough uh and as in as in the case of any kind of new new thing i am worried that like you know if workflow becomes this pro and workflow technology becomes the cause celebre uh in healthcare.
0: okay i'm cutting that off right about there because we're reaching the end of the segment this conversation was so animated uh that i totally missed my 13 minute cut off so i'm cutting this off we'll pick it up in segment four you're listening to the doctor's lounge on america's web radio
1: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
4: 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, and collectors and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to passporttransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport.
5: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
2: You're listening to
5: AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.